Welcome to the Branches Podcast. Following the lead of Jesus, we seek to embrace people regardless of their background or their present ground in the hope they find holy ground. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about the reckless love of Jesus or our community of faith, please visit our website at branchesoc.com. For those of you that don't know me, uh, my name is Michael Bischoff. I've been around here a little while. I'm not around here all the time, but I think I can't, I think this is my 11th message that I've given here at Branches in my fourth different venue. So it's always come to see where you are. It's like Branches, if you can find us, you can worship with us. If you can find us, you might be able to preach for us. I was having lunch with Boog like a little over a week ago, and he's like, yeah, you're coming on December 1st, right? I'm like, uh, not on my calendar. He's like, um, no, you're signed up. And I'm like, I don't remember it, but a good thing I'm free because, um, yeah, else it would have been a little bit of a challenge. But I always love being with you guys and hanging out. You guys are so gracious, and it's been great getting to know so many of you over the years that we've been friends together and that I get to kick off the Advent series. So we're, what, December 1st? We're in Advent. Christmas is coming. Like Kim said, you can start to feel it, right? Apart from, like, Black Friday's over, your credit card bills are higher, and now you can kind of settle into what Christmas is going to be like. I know Cyber Monday's coming for everybody else that's looking to continue to shop and stuff, but we're in the midst of the season. And there's a lot more to the season than just shopping, right? Um, it's hard to, to figure out how do I get into a spirit that would be adequate to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of this thing called Christmas, because he was a baby that got born, and uh, it's important to kind of remember that part of the story. My wife, Darlene, and I were actually in Bethlehem just a, a couple months ago. We spent three weeks in Israel and Jordan, and there is something about being in an actual place called Bethlehem, because it is there in this place where Jesus was born, and to where 2,000 years later, pe- thousands and thousands of people come to that place. In fact, it was so crowded. There's a church, that's the two churches, but a church built over the spot where supposedly Jesus would have been born. And you can go through a long line and climb into a little cave and kind of put your hand on a deal. And it was, the line was so long, our tour, our group, we had 33 people in our group that we were leading. We couldn't even do it. It was so long. Now, I've been there before, thankfully, so I got to do it before. But... That's amazing, isn't it, though, that thousands and thousands of people from all around the world would go back to this little spot because a baby was born that changed the world. That's what Advent's about. And we're kicking that off today. We're talking about hope. Hope is one of the Advent themes. Usually it's hope, peace, joy, love. I don't know what order Boog's going to do him. He's like, you're up first. You can choose whatever you want. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do hope because I think I've struggled a lot with hope this year. And as I sat and thought about what am I going to bring to branches, especially since I didn't know I was going to be speaking at all, so I had to figure out something to say. What am I going to talk about this subject? The worst thing I could do is get up here and go, come on, you you know, you need to have hope. You need to look happy. You need to produce joy and sort of force that, you know. I sometimes feel forced when people talk at me about things, like I'm supposed to do something that I haven't done a very good job at. Does that make sense? That's the worst thing I could do. So I'm like, well, what's then the better thing that I could do? And I felt like maybe the better thing is to share a little bit from my own story of how this year has been a challenging year to feel hopeful. And I'm not a mind reader, but I think that many of you are probably in that same place. If we were to like to just kind of pull these chairs into a big circle and sit around and just kind of share some of the challenges and struggles of our own lives this last year... I have a feeling many of us would be in that same boat where you'd be going, yeah, it is hard, you know? Financially, it's hard. You turn on the news, politically, it's hard. 
Sometimes you look at the church and what's going on, and you go, is, is it church families, followers of Jesus? It's hard. Sometimes in friendships, and you're like, I had friends a year ago that maybe I don't even have now. Or with family, it's hard. And then I'm supposed to get up here and talk about hope and encourage you all. Well, I want us to be a little bit different approach to hope today. My thought is hope is never something that's superficially imposed upon your life where now all of a sudden you walk out the door and you've got a new kick in your step and a smile on your face and everything is great and you're happy-tappy. It just doesn't work that way. I think by the time we're done today, hopefully you'll get a little better idea of what I'm trying to get at here. Because my fear is that talking about hope today could be more discouraging to some than encouraging. And I don't want that to happen, right? Because if I'm up here talking just about hope and you're not feeling it, you're going to be like, disconnect. I don't get it. And that's one of my greatest fears today is often the things we hear in churches or, you know, when we turn on Christian radio or whatever it is you do or listen to podcasts, sometimes there's a major disconnect. And that makes me sad. I think many are getting tired of hearing talks or reading books that deliver what might feel like false promises. Um, and I think we increasingly live in a hope-deprived culture. And there are some reasons for that. Um, hope or lack of it is really part of our daily story. We hope for something every day. The last couple of days, my wife and I have been in Utah and our son, Kyle, and we drove um, all the way there, 650 miles to spend time. And on Thanksgiving, we had 47 relatives that were there. It was often a time of family reunion when we'd gone to Utah. And sometimes we've had upwards of 80 to 100 people hanging out for Thanksgiving. And I thought, this is an interesting gathering because you can get together and hang out with a bunch of family. And I don't know about you, but I kind of feel the pressure to tell the good stories that happened in my life that year and be like, oh, Michael's doing well. You know, oh, he's feeling successful. He's driving a newer car than he was last time. His clothes don't look as shabby. He's not even looking as old as he was before. I, I, you want to kind of bring in your best self into holiday times. But that's so fake and probably the worst thing you could ever do. So instead, what I did is I found myself sharing some of the weakness, some of the pain, some of the struggle out of my year. I really believe that it's the weakness that we share that makes a difference in our lives. And when we take the reality um, and, be, and are able to share that in deep community with others, that that's one of the best things you could ever do, to take your story and honestly tell it. And now people don't feel like they're comparing with you or have to keep up from you or keep up with you, but that we're in this together. I think there's hope in that. Until yesterday when we hit the freeway and what's supposed to be a nine-hour drive turned into a 13-hour drive coming home from Utah, I had hoped it would be a better drive, but it wasn't. Um, that was a little bit discouraging, you know? Hope is in our everyday stories, though. It makes me think of this place because, as many of you know, several years ago, Boog was laying in his deathbed. Lungs completely, almost as failure. When I went and visited him in the hospital at UCLA, completely hooked up to tubes and stuff, the machines were keeping him alive. And it was one of the most horrendous sights I'd ever seen, to have blood coming out of someone's body and oxygenated so it could be put back in because his lungs were completely gone. And I remember walking out of there with Steph and the kids and stuff there going, I don't feel much hope. I don't feel much hope in that. The good news, though, in the story, as you know, got lung donor, got lung transplant, and he looks really good today. There was hope in that, right? It didn't feel it, but it came about. Um, 
at 28, I think the last time I shared with you, um, I shared my story of finding six half-siblings that I'd never known my entire life. And a year ago, were some of you there when I shared that a little while ago? This was a powerful story for me because last September, I ended up, uh, when I was 28 years old, I learned that I had six half-siblings. And I uh, grew up thinking my dad died in an airplane crash, which wasn't a true story. And uh, really, he had another family and kind of had abandoned me and my mom. And I had these six half-siblings. And, uh, but it took me 27 years to get enough guts to find them. And I felt pretty hopeless throughout all that time. That was really a tough deal. But I stepped into it, and uh, last September, I put this e- uh, Facebook message out there that just said, hey, I'm your half-brother, and I'd love to meet you. I've known about you for a long time. Do you want to meet me? Here I am. And that was really scary because I was really fearful that being abandoned by a dad and then rejected by six half-siblings was more than I could ever handle. And if they had rejected me, I can tell you, my life would feel pretty hopeless. But in that case, I took a risk, and they, were, they are some of the most loving people I've ever met. And my brother says to me, the very first time we talked on the phone, now there's seven of us. Immediate acceptance and love. Took a risk, could have been hopeless. In that case, it was hopeful. I was really encouraged by that. I'm living into that even as we speak. There's been so much healing even since I talked to you guys last time in that area because I took a risk and stepped into it. But it was a risk, and it wasn't guaranteed. It might not have been hopeful. In this case, it was. Second thing, um, I think we're often in a place of being frustrated, of wanting to be in a place that we're not. Can you relate to that at all? Like wanting to be in a place that you're not and... uh, We'll do that. Let's do a little exercise if you can, you can get into the, to the moment for this. Just close your eyes for a minute. Close your eyes and think of a person you know who has something that you want, okay? It could be something material. It could be a family member. It could be, you know, uh, a cuter spouse. That's why God made that one of the Ten Commandments. At the end, don't covet someone else's spouse. It could be anything, okay? But think of someone who has something you want. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to share it. That might be a little bit too embarrassing, okay? Now mentally go to their social media page and begin scrolling down their social media to see how successful they are and that thing that they've got that you want that might keep showing up there. And that's hard to see. That's hard to look at. Because they have something you want. To you, they seem successful. To you, that doesn't feel very hopeful for you. It looks hopeful in their life. But just kind of sit with that, that tension and that feeling of discouragement or lack of hope. Okay, you can open your eyes. Um, I, I think we experience that every day. Many of us who live in realms of social media and stuff experience it every day. I notice I have pretty big um, condition of social media avoidance for the very reason of what I just walked you through. Because when I go to someone's page, I pour my, I, I look at that and I'm like, they've got something I want. I don't have that. I want more of it. I want what they have. And I just assume their life is great. And I avoid or unfriend or delete anyone who I think has a better life than me. And if I want more of what they have in my life, I'm just, nah, I don't like that delete. Just kind of weird, you know. I, I don't know why people do that. When we were over in Israel and I posted, I don't post a lot of stuff on social media, but when I was in Israel, I did for 20 days. We were doing this pilgrimage trip all around the Holy Land, and I posted something every day. I came back, I'd lost 100 Facebook friends. Now, I don't normally take count. 
I am OCD a little bit, but I don't normally count my friends, but I just noticed that it had dropped. I don't know why that was, but chances are it could be for the very reason I just told you. I was there, they weren't. And we do a lot of that stuff, right? This is more than just FOMO, which we talk a lot about, fear of missing out today, because that is a big reality. But literally, researchers are finding that using social media obsessively causes more than just anxiety. Testing has actually show, shows now that too much internet usage causes depression, ADHD, impulsive disorders, problems with mental functioning, paranoia, and loneliness. So if you want that stuff, just pull out your phone and just start using social media. It's sort of a sad reality. I can talk out of both sides of my mouth because I found my siblings on Facebook. Okay? There was I found it in that, and yet at the same time, this very thing can send us into deep places of discouragement and depression and not feeling hope. Here's another issue that I think we're going to deal with today is a shift in certainty, a shift in certainty. Many of us have probably come from backgrounds where we've been taught that if you don't have certainty in certain things, you don't have hope, and you got to be certain about those things. If you doubt, no, you're not certain. You know, if you don't absolutely believe every single word of the Bible is true just the way it said it, there's, there's not enough certainty there, you can't have hope. Is that true? Is, is that true? Um, I read a book this last year that really challenged me in that. Um, it's by a Bible scholar, professor called, named Pete Enns, who wrote a book called The Sin of Certainty. That sometimes if you're chasing certainty in too deep a way or in a wrong way, it will put you in a really bad place. And maybe God didn't want us to be so certain in the first place. Maybe we worship certainty more than we trust God. And maybe we can live in a place where we allow our uncertainty to be okay. And that allows us to live in a place of hope even better. Are you following me? I mean, I know it's a little bit complicated, and it is early on Sunday morning. It is December 1st, and you're tired and filled up with turkey and all that stuff, but I think you can work with me a little bit with some of these thoughts. In fact, a couple weeks ago, there was actually over in Europe a conference on what's called radical theology, and radical theology, it might be more, um, it's a theological framework, maybe more an, a non-theological framework, but it's the idea of resting in the unrest of uncertainty. There's a whole conference about this. In fact, Rather than trying to figure out how certain I can be about something, what if we just admitted that we can't be certain about certain things, and we just sort of rested in that? I thought, wow, that's an interesting conference. I'm not sure how many people were there, but what does that mean to just let it be okay when we can't always see things the way we want to see them? Um, can I give you a little deeper peek into my own existential angst over the last year? It's been a rough year, and I don't know what to do sometimes, but just to share my own story into that and, and how it's caused me, I think, to struggle with hope a little bit. Um, 2018, I took a sabbatical. I had shared this with you in previous time, too. I got the very first time in over 30 years of ministry to take a sabbatical where I got to rest for a number of months. And I did that because I was experiencing some pretty deep symptoms. Um, I work with people in what I do. I work with pastors and leaders and churches all over the place. And I started to find myself coming to the place where when I'd be sitting with a pastor over lunch or in a meeting with a church staff team or something like that, I started to hear like Charlie Brown's mother's voice. You know that? That wah, 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 wah. And this was not good. I'd never experienced that before. And I wasn't sure why my ears were hearing that. But I was with people that I normally love and enjoy hanging out with. And all of a sudden... I'm not feeling it. I, I don't want to be there. And not only do I, I can't hear them, I'm not listening, 
I'm not coming up with anything that feels helpful or encouraging to them. And it's a real bummer. And then when I leave that time, I'm totally drained, completely drained with no energy left anymore. And I didn't know what to do with that. And I began to experience what I knew was burnout because I work with a bunch of leaders who burn out all the time. And I realize I'm now experiencing burnout in a way that I'd never felt these feelings before. Now, I wasn't scared about that because I know over a lifetime, many people burn out for a short period of time. It's sort of this normal thing. You, do best, you just better do something about it. So that's why I took this sabbatical. But in the midst of that, I also was struggling with what's commonly called a dark night of the soul, a phrase coined by 16th century mystic known as St. John of the Cross. But a dark night of the soul is where God seems entirely absent from your life, no matter how hard you try to pray, read your Bible, or whatever. And I'm like, hey, I'm this pastor, religious, helper, coach, consultant guy that's supposed to help other people feel encouraged, and I'm struggling finding God. It got so bad that on my sabbatical, Darlene and I went to a place that's this little island off the coast of Scotland called Iona. It's this little beautiful spot. In Celtic spirituality, it's known as a thin place. And it's known as a thin place because God is supposed to feel so present there. So we literally went all the way to England and then took a train all the way to Scotland and then took a bus and a ferry and another bus and another ferry over an entire day to get to an island that's like one mile by one and a half mile long or something like that with a bunch of sheep grazing to spend eight days there so I could find God and I couldn't. I was in my dark night of the soul there as much as anywhere else. God still seemed entirely absent. That was really frustrating. I spent a lot of money and a lot of time to get to this island to find God, and God didn't seem like he was very present there. I'm like, God, what's up with that? Come on, I'm doing all this work to try to seek you, and yet I'm having a really tough time. And I went from that place, and it was still a beautiful place. And I love sheep, so walking around the island seeing sheep, that was awesome. But I really did want to find God, and he just seemed really absent in the midst of that. And so I started wondering, is there, is there a God? If I can't find him in this place, is there even a God? And I experienced in over 40 years of being a Jesus follower and walking with God, my first crisis of faith, where I couldn't tell if there even was a God. So when I say I'm struggling with hope this year, I hope you're relating a little bit to what, what I'm going through. And I know some of you are there or have been there or are thinking about going there. Kind of like you look at a travel brochure. Where do I go this year with my faith? Maybe I'll go into crisis of faith. Maybe I got something to do. You know, let's go wander around there a little bit. Um, the podcasts and stuff I listen to tell me that there's thousands, millions of people struggling with their faith. So where's the hope in that? Where's the hope in that? And let me go down one level deeper. I know this is like Darren Downer morning here a little bit, but let me go down one step deeper so you can just relate a little bit to my struggles with hope because I told you I work with pastors and churches. And one of the main questions pastors ask me when I meet with them are, um, why are people leaving my, my church? People are leaving our church. It's getting smaller. It is shrinking. And it used to be people were coming and people were inviting and it was growing and that was encouraging, but it keeps shrinking. And I don't know what to do about that. That's one of the main questions I get asked. And so, honestly, trying to answer that question, I get discouraged because I think about stuff that's been happening, like, over the last year. I think about the way women are treated in the church today. 
one of the largest churches in America. Many of you know a place called Willow Creek. Amazing pastor, Bill Hybels, built that church. And within the last couple of years, scandal broke out to where women had been mistreated in that place over a, around a dozen women for 20 to 30 years. And it all came out in the midst of his retirement. And that discourages me. Wonder why are people leaving the church? Sometimes it's for reasons like that. A church I was a part of for many years, not too far from here, another mega church, has a really famous pastor. And you might have seen this stuff hit the internet over the last few weeks, a guy named John MacArthur, who ended up just saying, women need to go home. They just need to go home because women have no place except in the home. Women should never teach or never preach. What Kim did here this morning is inexcusable in that environment because they should never get up in front and do any of that stuff. Now, I came from that place, so I can relate to that and what those people are learning and being taught. And yet all over the world, people are looking at someone who influences thousands, millions of people and go, if that's what the church teaches, I don't want anything to do with that. Because the church doesn't treat women very well. And that makes me really discouraged. I don't feel like there's hope when I hear stuff like that. Another one is the way immigrants are treated today. I was in a church recently, and I was sharing just a story. I was down in San Diego, um, and I was spending the day with a friend, a friend of John and mine, a guy named John Huckins, and this wonderful ministry called the Global Immersion Project. And they brought in for the day a number of people who had all different stories. And there was one gal there that was just a young lady sharing her story about when she was two years old. Her parents took her from Mexico and came into America, not legally, and she grew up in this place. And all of a sudden, things changed. She was an amazing student. She was working in school, uh, working hard at doing well, and she was planning to go to college. And then she decided, I'm going to surprise my parents. I think I can get accepted into college and maybe even get a scholarship, and she did. She ended up going, applying for university, getting a scholarship for that place, and coming home, and one night at dinner, she says, Mom and Dad, guess what? I've got a full-ride scholarship for, and she named the, the school. But she looked at their faces, and they were like, totally somber. What's, and she's like, what's wrong? And they looked at her and said, you can't go. And she's like, why not? She didn't know her background. They're like, you don't have a social security number. You're not a citizen. You can't go. And she didn't know all of that back history. And it went from being a straight-A student who could get a full-ride scholarship to a university with a lot of hope and life ahead of her to this place of living in fear that now not only she but her family could end up getting deported because of what she just did. And she ended up walking everywhere looking over her shoulder like, you know, what big white van's going to pull up and throw me in and take my whole family back. I shared that story in a church because that story wrecked me, you know. I know that immigration is a huge issue, and I know there are no simple answers to it. But when you hear someone like that who loves Jesus and is trying to figure out how to do well, she's doing well, and uh, she ended up going through the citizenship process, and some really cool things are happening. But when I shared that story in a church, I had someone come up to me afterwards, and they just go, you're going to get letters for that one. And I'm like, okay. And what I didn't know, she was the one that was going to write letters to the staff and the elders because of that story that I shared. That makes me sad. That makes me sad. Because I saw a young lady sharing her story of love and the way God was working in her life. And someone else 
heard something different, and we live in the midst of that reality. Where's there hope in that? Um, I told you, we just went to Israel and Jordan for three weeks, and we're spending time with, there's 33 of us on this trip from a church, and this was really a wonderful trip. No one on the trip had ever been there. And so it's fun to lead a bunch of newbies in the midst of a place that's so amazing as the Holy Land. Yet one of the challenges was helping them to learn to love people who were different than them. And, and that was a little discouraging because some of them didn't have a hard time. When we, we left Tel Aviv one morning, we were heading to Caesarea, and one of the things off the side of the road was a, about a 300-foot vertical billboard with a picture of Donald Trump shaking hands with Benjamin Netanyahu. And so I thought, that's kind of interesting. You know, they love Americans right now because of that. And um, uh, so this group that was on, on our tour had a pretty easy time loving Israelis and loving Jewish people. But whenever there was an Arab, Palestinian, Muslim person around, it wasn't so easy. And I tried to prep them with this and tried to encourage them to, hey, guys, you know, God created everyone here. And uh, in the sense of understanding, what does it mean to love someone else? There was even someone on the trip that went by our, um, our Arab bus driver, walked out the door, and said something to someone else. Hey, you look like an Arab to one of her friends, to which my wife had to go to her and say, do you know our bus driver's Arab? She said, oh, no. Oh, no, I said that. Do I need to apologize? And my wife had to say, yeah, you need to apologize. Because they were struggling loving people who were different than them. That discourages me. I don't feel a lot of hope in that when that comes along. I go down a whole list. I got a whole list here. I don't have time to go through it all. I get discouraged the way poor and homeless and people of different races are treated. I get discouraged the way LGBTQIA people are treated. I get discouraged about the way anyone who might be considered an, the other are treated today. And I have to work with the churches and try to help them learn to do that in new ways. And that doesn't often feel very hopeful. Are you relating with me yet? Are we down deep enough? Should we go down any deeper? Where is hope in the midst of that? Where is there hope? You heard this passage of scripture this morning from Jeremiah 29 that was read. Um, the Jews had been living in exile for 50 years. Now, this is a big deal, because while this happened in about 586, 587 B.C., where uh, the Babylonians came in and took the Jews and basically just deported them, took them to Babylon, and they lived there for about 50 years, um, they still remember that to this day. They're still talking about that. We were just there. And, and, and our guide was telling us, like, yeah, when we were in Babylon, like it was yesterday, this just amazes me, okay? They've been living in the midst of this, so exile. Exile. Think of this just a minute. So exile literally means just being banned from your native country. And that's what happened to Israel. They were banned from their native country. They were taken away. Just as if, like, let's just say, like, Iran came. And somehow they brought all these planes, and they took into all of America back to Iran. And we lived there for 50 years. Okay? Are you relating a little bit to that? That's kind of what it would be like to be taken away from our country and, and to see what that would be like. Figuratively, let's work with this concept of exile for just a minute. It means being banned from the places we once enjoyed or thought were safe or called home. Now, can you relate to that kind of exile? Do you feel like a little bit separated from places that you once felt like you could be a part of or that you once enjoyed or that you felt were safe? 
Or if you call yourself a Christian, what might a figurative exile look like for you? You now live on the margins of a society that does not value your church, your beliefs, your sacred book, your God. They might value your practices or your actions if they make a difference in the world. Here's a principle. If you're taking notes, you can write down a couple of these things, but a principle that comes out of this is hope comes in embracing the reality of what is. Hope comes in embracing the reality of what is. Not in ignoring reality or living in denial or possibly even pretending it'll go away. And one of the things I'm trying to say, warning light, don't do, don't live in denial. Don't live in the unreality that it's just going to get better. We need to learn to have hope in the midst of the fact if stuff doesn't get better, how do we deal with it then? How do we deal with it then? Let's go back to this passage. I just want to jump to these verses really quick. We're not going to spend a lot of time there, but Jeremiah 29, in verse 10, um, it says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I don't know why it says 70. They're, they were there around 50 years. Uh-oh, problem in the Bible. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll get over it. I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. That's a long time, whether it's 50 years, 70 years. How, how long do you need to live in an uncomfortable place before you've learned the lessons necessary to go back where you want to live how do you even know if you've learned those lessons here's another thought we need something to look forward to we need something to look forward to i don't know about you but when we go on vacation usually when we go away somewhere fun and it's coming to an end you know how you start to get to, to depressed at the end of your vacation like it's, it's almost over we start planning the next vacation um, and there's one reason we do that, because we know there's something really valuable about having something to look forward to. And so I like if there's something else planned, you know. I'm going to be at a retreat like next weekend up in the mountains in Mount Hermon, and I'm looking forward to that, to just be there. So good. And we need something to look forward to. And I think God knows his people need the same. We need something to look forward to. So there's a deeper principle, though. While we might be living in the midst of something confusing or painful or frustrating, chances are that there's something really good around the next turn that we just can't see. There might be some hope in that. No matter what you're facing right now, whatever struggles in your life, and if you're not feeling hope, I'm here to say that's okay. If you're not feeling hope, that's okay. But there might be something around that turn that you can't see yet. Because often you can only see the distance of your headlights. When you're driving at night, you can only see that distance. You can't see farther than that. And I think that's a lot like life. There's something that's coming up, and it might be good. But that might be what you need to keep on driving down the road. In verse 11, it goes on, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. And here's where this is the big hope verse passage right here plans to give you hope and a future notice that those who had been living in exile probably hadn't been feeling much hope for a long time can you imagine spending 50 years in another country that's not your own dragged there against your will and trying to feel hope in the midst of that another principle to think about is it seems as if the lord has plans that bring hope but only if and when humans learn the necessary lessons to 
to live into that hope. And sometimes that takes time. And sometimes I wonder, you know, why do I struggle with dark night of the soul? Why have I struggled with a crisis of faith? How long is this going to take? I at one point in my life where I went through eight months of clinical depression. Why does this take so long? And it might be because I need that length of time in order to wake up, in order to trust, in order to take a risk, in order to know I just need to keep going and take a next faithful step. In verse 12, then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Um, do you get the sense that there's some things that God really doesn't want to listen to? Um, maybe our selfish individual pleas that treat our needs as more important than the good of our community or our entitlement, our whining, our complaining. I don't know. I get the sense that there's some things that just God's like, I'm done. I'm, I'm done. Listen, I don't even want to listen to that. But I love this when God says, I will listen to you. And then verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What does it mean to seek God with all your heart? Maybe not getting from God what you want, but committing your whole person into, catch this, wanting what God wants. See the difference? Not just wanting what I want, but wanting what God wants. Principle in that is I might prove more fruitful or it might prove more fruitful to pray for what God wants rather than what you want. So when you find yourself praying next, ask yourself, hmm, what am I asking for? Because prayer is about asking. Prayer is fundamentally about asking. But what are you asking for? Just do a little motive check. Because one of the reasons prayer might seem so discouraging is because it's just too much about you. Try to get out of the place of you. Get into the place of we. Stop your individual thing and think about community. Think about the others that you've been with here this morning. If you pray later on today, think who you've been with here this morning. Who are you in a group with? Who are you hanging out with? Who has needs that you might make a difference in their lives if you were praying for them? And then finally in verse 14, I love this. God says, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. That's good news feel really good to get on an airplane in Iran and fly back to America if you've been there for 50 years. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Read that carefully. Who does this say carried them into exile? It's not a trick question. Who carried them into exile? God did. God did it. Do you ever wonder if God gives us what we want based on the way we want it? Um, when I had my sabbatical, I was off for nine months, and I wanted to rest. I thought I deserved rest. It'd been over 30 years. I'd never rested. I took this sabbatical, and I wanted to rest. And week one, the end of week one of my sabbatical, my mom died. Thanks, God. Going to be restful on this sabbatical, so the whole first month now taken, planning her memorial service, taking care of her affairs. And I say that because I always say, I love my mom to death, and I love doing her memorial service. But do you feel in it with me there? I want to rest, and all of a sudden, mom dies. So literally the first month, two months, is now just grief and loss and pain and struggle, and I wasn't getting rest like I wanted to get rest. And I could go on, I don't have time. The last week of my sabbatical, one of my good friends died, someone that worked with us on our team. 53 years old, snowboarding with his family, and died of a heart attack. 
I didn't plan for that on my sabbatical. That didn't feel very restful. And I don't think Israel was experiencing what they wanted either. But the principle I pulled out of that was, if you want to treat others as slaves, maybe the best lesson is to be traded as a slave for a while. Sometimes we don't get what we want, but we get what we need. And so for me, I ended up getting something real different in the sabbatical. I ended up seeing things really different. Most of what I'm sharing with you this morning came as a result of being able to step back, being able to focus, and see things with some different glasses on. Let me just wrap this up. A couple thoughts here to close. Um, Hope is found not when things are perfectly just as you want them to be, but maybe when you find yourself in exile in another land. Not literally, but figuratively. There's a lot of ways we're in exile right now. Christians aren't at the center of culture. Did you know that? Surprise. They're just not. And if you find yourself with a belief system that's different and people don't agree with you, people might not even like you. People compare you to what they think is a Christian rather than what a true Jesus follower was meant to be. That's a tough place to live. That's exile. And it's not found in other places, but it might be found in a baby. That's where this Christmas Advent season is so amazing. A baby that would grow up to challenge the systems of the empire that were oppressing others. Just think about that for a moment. What it is like for a baby to be born that would challenge all the ruling systems of government. For me, I think it's found in the pain of having to question and challenge the way that I've always thought about something. And maybe you can use this season to begin to question some of the ways you think about something and need to challenge some of those thoughts as well. I heard a quote a few weeks ago, and I thought this was really interesting. It said, life isn't here to make us happy. It's here to make us conscious. Life isn't here to make us happy. It's here to make us conscious. Because whenever I make happiness my goal, I'm always let down. But when parts of my being are working together in a way that allows me to be conscious of life's realities... I then begin to experience wholeness in the way it was intended to be experienced. I need to be conscious of things that I might just miss. I might close my eyes to, or I might just be blind to, or deaf to. I need to be able to see the other. I need to be able to see people that are different than me and learn what it means to love and not just be selfish or not just be concerned about my own needs. We have the opportunity every day to become more conscious of the beautiful way that humans are designed. God's creation is absolutely amazing. That's one of the things I love about being out in creation is that I experience and see God in what God created. That amazes me, that God is in every molecule, every atom, every quark, every cell. God is there, and you can see that. And that amazes me. And that makes me happy. And that gives me hope that God is in everything. I'm so encouraged by that. So here's a little Advent challenge. If you want a little homework, here's a little challenge. Look for ways not just to say, hey, isn't it great to have hope, peace, joy, love during this Christmas season? And you can kind of tell when you're not feeling it. But instead of trying to fake it, instead... Look for ways to share your story of struggle. That's all I did this morning. I shared with you a little bit of my story of struggle over the past year. 
And some of you are like, man, we need to pray for Michael. I hope Bug doesn't ask him to come back here again. Because this guy's really, he's, he's like struggling. Let's pray for the guy. Please do. Pray for me. I'll take all the prayer I can get, okay? So if you're like, if you're like I'm not sure about that guy, I'll just take your prayers. I'm good with that. But where's your story of struggle? What is your story of struggle? And what might be a place that you can share it? Who might you share it with? Because it's not just a story of struggle. I believe there's always hope in the midst of that struggle. So it's more honest. It feels more authentic that way, to be a story of hope and struggle, not just superficial hope. Does that make sense, what I'm trying to say or get it there? And who can you share it with that needs to hear how you might be struggling? I just believe in that. You're going to find the best kind of Advent hope. God, um, meet us in the places where we are. And I know there's... There's no way we could sit around in a circle right now and we could all share uh, some of the things that we are struggling with, have struggled with, that we think we're about to be struggling with, and uh, it would take hours and hours to unpack that. I'm glad that you know our hearts. You know our minds. You know the way we think. You know the way we hurt. You know our pain. And it's even because of that that a baby got sent to this earth. What an amazing, amazing reality. A baby who would change the world like no other. A baby who would challenge systems. A baby who would teach and walk with the people who had been in exile in a literal way. A baby whose life would constantly point toward a deep and real hope that doesn't escape from pain but in the midst of it, is able to see what you really intend for our lives. Help us to live into that this week. I pray that each one of us could find one person, one person to share some of our story with, just honestly. And it might not even feel like it's hopeful, but if we share that story, I believe there's hope and joy in the midst of doing just that as we use our lives to bless someone else. Help us to do that. Pray it afresh. In your name we pray. Amen. It's always humbling to be asked to come before and share some sort of thought or reflection on God's word. Um, so I'm not going to share my thoughts or reflections. I'm going to share from the word itself. And this is a guy who knew his share of struggles, his share of seemingly hopeless moments in life, David. And in Psalm 71, David writes, and I think of the Psalms kind of like a journal, right? And we've all probably written things like this in our journals, whether physically writing or just keeping track mentally. David writes, in you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge, to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. And this next verse is one that's been with me since I was a teenager just learning what it meant to follow the Lord. And, and I thought it was great that we had our youth 
do the Advent candle this morning because as a youth of that age, that's where I began to follow the Lord. And David writes, For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. Not just our hope, but our confidence. Our confidence can be in Christ. Hope to me sounds like something that might happen, but confidence is something that will happen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this season of Advent, the season of Jesus coming. Thank you for the words you shared this morning through Michael and our worship this morning. May it be pleasing to you. Um, we are grateful for the hope and confidence we have in you and in your son, Jesus. And we say together, amen. Thanks, Michael, for bringing the word this morning. Thank you guys for leading us in worship. Please help clean up if you can. Grab your kids and have a great Sunday.